Welcome to the Lex City Church Podcast. To learn more about the ministries of Lex City, please visit LexCity.Church. Well, this morning we continue in our series in the book of Revelation, and we're going to pick up Revelation chapter 20, and we're nearing the end of this amazing journey. Uh, next week, Helen's going to lead us home with the excitement and the joy of what heaven means and the encouragement that means to our lives. But we've got a long ways to go today before we get to that point as we go. And so last week, if you were here, we finished chapter 19 and we ended with the battle of Armageddon. And let me quickly just put the timeline up here again so you can get a little context of where we're at, especially if you're visiting with us this morning. We finished the seven-year tribulation at the very end of that where the arrow comes down was the battle of, of Armageddon. The armies of the world led by the Antichrist rally around the holy city of Jerusalem. And all seems lost at this moment, but in that moment the sky splits. And Jesus returns on the white horse with the saints, which will be us during that amazing time. And he destroys the armies of there. And then the cast into the Lake of Fire, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, if you remember that from chapter 19. And so that's where we, we end on there. And now we're heading into this thing. If you see on the bottom there, the thousand-year millennial kingdom. And that's what Revelation chapter 20 picks up. So let's uh, jump in this morning. Verse 1 says this, And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the pit, and he shut it, and he sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. Revelation chapter 20 starts with this powerful image, and I love it. The angel in one hand has the chains and the key, and I love in the other hand, he grabs Satan, and I have this picture of him just holding him by the neck, and it says he throws him into the pit, and he seals him there. I'm always reminded as powerful as Satan is, his power is simply on loan, and when God chooses to step in, simply the angels uh, have authority over these things, and they cast him into the pit that's there. And I love that the Bible wants to make sure that we clearly understand who it is that's being cast into this pit. Go back to verse two. John calls him, John calls him this, the dragon, the ancient serpent, the devil, and Satan. I mean, in a book that there's so much vague things that we're not quite sure what he's saying, he wants to make sure, listen, this is Satan. And so he gives us all the names that are listed that are cast into that so the details are abundantly clear. And then we begin this thing called the thousand-year millennial kingdom. Now, it's slightly redundant, right? Because millennium means a thousand, and so it's a thousand years. You kind of get the idea. Um, and as we talk about this today, it will come to you as no surprise, just like when we talked about the tribulation. There is a pre-tribulational view, a mid-tribulational view, and a post-tribulational view. You may be shocked to know that as we talk about the thousand years, there are differing views on what these thousand years really mean. And today I want to just give you a quick overview of the three major views that come about this thousand year millennial reign that we're going to talk about. First one is a post-millennial view of these thousand years. The very word post would imply that what? Jesus is going to return at the end of the millennium, post-millennial reign that's there. And Jesus will return in this view once the church has evangelized and Christianized the world to such an extent that they usher in the golden age. And the concept is, is that once the church has 
evangelize and, and Christianize the world in such a way they will then present the world to Jesus on his return at the end of the millennium. Now, this teaching gained some traction probably uh, in the, uh, at the end of the 19th century uh, and really the start of the 20th century. Think about things that are happening during this time. Uh, it was really, in many ways, the golden age, right? The Industrial Revolution is, is off and, and running. Scientific advancement is growing. Uh, there's this great optimism about the land. So, of course, maybe the church is really changing the world and ushering it in. That all seems to make sense until some events happen in the early 1900s, right? World War I, <laughs> World War II, the Great Depression, and all of a sudden we begin to think, hmm, maybe the golden age isn't quite so golden, right? And the popularity went, of this view went down. It's, it's no surprise, right? The Bible's pretty clear. Things are going to get worse before the Lord returns. They're not going to get better before the Lord returns. Uh, apostasy is going to rule the land before the Lord returns in these things. And I think the danger of a post a millennial view on this. I'm always reminded, listen, friends, we're, we are not the heroes of the story. And we certainly aren't the ones who are going to save the world. If we could save the world without Jesus, why would we need Jesus, right? This is the point that it comes. And so that one kind of faded away. The, another view, which another of the major views is an amillennial view uh, of this idea during the millennial reign. And, and again, we've talked a little bit about this. This is that view that uh, it's an allegory, it's a story, it's symbolic. Uh, it's this idea that the promises and covenants to Israel will now be fulfilled by the church during this time. And so again, this uh, amillennial view says the things that we're talking about here, and really even through the book of Revelation, are figurative by nature. This won't be a literal thousand-year kingdom. It's figurative there, which means in their concept that we are currently living in the millennium the millennial reign right now is the idea and the thought in that today uh, the church has replaced Israel in that relationship. But an interesting thing, if that's the case, and the scripture we'll see today clearly teaches that Satan is bound during this millennial. So the idea that Satan is bound even right now, I don't know about you, that scares me a little bit. If we are in this bad shape in the absence of Satan's uh, presence, I can't imagine when he's released that's there. I think that becomes there. And um, this... This idea of there gained traction really with Augustine in the start of the fourth century. It was this amillennial view kind of came into popularity again. Many hold that view uh, even today along those lines. The, the third view of the millennium is a premillennial view, and that's the view that was predominantly held through the first three centuries of church history. This just was the view until the fourth century, and Augustine brought an amillennial concept into there. And this really does this. It interprets the book of Revelations as you would the entire book of the Bible, any of the books of the Bible. So when you read it, you simply read it in a natural way with a natural understanding of what it was. So when the Bible reads saying it's a thousand years, then we would just say it's a thousand years, right? And this is the approach, if you've been here, this is the approach I've used to this entire book of Revelation, and it'll be the approach that I'll use again here in Revelations chapter 20. Uh, Vance Havner simply said it this way. It's always easier to understand what the Bible says than it is to understand what somebody thinks it, it was meant to say. <laughs> and so I'm just not that bright. If it just says it, I'm gonna believe it where it is. That's kind of the idea there. So what I wanna do today with those views in mind, I wanna answer three questions uh, today as we think about this millennial kingdom, the thousand year reign. So if you've got your Bibles, let's go to Revelations chapter 20. If you've got your phones, you can go to Lex City. Dot info, all the sermon notes are there. Three questions for us today we want to answer. Number one is why do we need a millennial kingdom? I mean, that's what I'm, I'm reading. I'm like, we just had Battle of Armageddon, right? 
armies are defeated, Antichrist and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire. Can we just, it seems like we're done. Why do we need this? We're going to answer that one. Second question, uh, who will be alive during this time? Who's going to populate the earth during this millennial hundred thousand years that are there? And the third one, what will we as saints uh, in our glorified state, what will we be doing during this time? What's our role during this thousand-year reign? So those three questions that we want to jump into. So as we jump into those, remember again the context. Revelations 19, we just finished the bowls, right? The final judgment, the, the final bowls, it's decimated the earth. The mountains have been collapsed. If you remember from chapter 19, the, the islands have been brought into the seas. A thousand-pound hailstones have crushed the earth. The earth is in no condition at this moment for a thousand-year reign. I mean, it is decimated. It's a question when asked. Why do we need a millennial reign? I think the first answer to the, would be this. Number one is this. The curse on the earth will be lifted during this time. It will be restored at this time. Isaiah chapter 65 verse 17 tells us this. It tells us that there will not only be a new heaven, but there will be a new earth. And the curse of this physical earth will be lifted Back to the context, I think, almost a little bit of a Garden of Eden kind of existence, that the, the curse is there. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6 through 9 tells us that there will be peace in the animal kingdom during this thousand years, that the lion will eat straw and a child will play by the cobra. It gives, again, this picture, Garden of Eden kind of returning, absence of the curse that's there. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4 tells us that men will turn their swords into plows in other words, it will be a thousand years where there is no war. Peace will pervade the earth at that time. And last one, Isaiah chapter 65 tells us that people will live long into life into their hundreds. You're saying, I haven't heard any of those things before. Well, let me take you back to Isaiah, the prophet. And he gives us these prophetic words in Isaiah chapter 65. And I believe he's talking about this millennial kingdom as we go. And so here's what he said. Isaiah chapter 65, let me just read them for you. Chapter 7, verses 17 to 25. And look, I am creating new heavens and a new earth, and, the, and no one will even think about the old ones anymore. Be glad, rejoice forever in my creation. And look, I will create Jerusalem as a place of happiness. Her happiness will be the source of joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and delight in my people. And the sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. No longer will babies die when only a few days old. No longer will adults die before they have lived a full life. No longer will people be considered old at 100. Only the cursed will die that young. It's this concept that life will be extended. Garden of Eden kind of, kind of uh, idea. Verse 21. In those days, people will live in the house that they will build, and they will eat the fruit of their own vineyards. Unlike the past, invaders will not take their houses and confiscate their vineyards. For my people will live as long as trees, and my chosen ones will have time to enjoy their hard-won gains. They will not work in vain, and their children will not be doomed to misfortune. For they are people blessed by the Lord, and their children too will be blessed. And I will answer them before they even call to me. While they are still talking about their needs, I will go ahead and answer their prayers. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat hay like a cow, but the snakes will eat dust." In those days, no one will be hurt or destroyed on my holy mountain. I, the Lord, have spoken. Gives this picture, of, it's kind of like a utopia. Now, it's, it's not heaven. We're going to see that next week a little bit more, the difference there. 
But it is an amazing place at this time. A, a curse has been lifted, I think, the land. Here's the second reason I, th I think we need the millennial kingdom, is the covenant with Israel will finally be fulfilled. Remember the covenant and promises in the Old Testament for Israel, that the nations, that the people will be regathered from all the nations, they will be regathered back together, that the lands of their forefathers will once again be inhabited and restored, that the Messiah will sit on the throne in the city of David. I mean, these are all fulfillment of the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 10 to 13, that all take place during the millennium. And all of the remaining promises and covenants that God has with the nation of Israel will be fulfilled during these next thousand years. So again, as we think about end times, we're always gonna remember Israel is central in the, in the story. They're central in the role they play. So the covenants will be filled. Number three, uh, second question I wanna ask is, is who will be alive during this time, right? We just had the battle of Armageddon, all these things. Well, who's gonna be alive during these thousand years? I think Jesus gives us an answer to that in a teaching that he did back in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, if you think about the book, it has three parables. It's the parable of the 10 bridesmaids. It's the parable of the three servants. And then he gives this teaching that I think gives us a glimpse into what's gonna be happening at this moment at the start of the thousand year millennial reign. So let's go to Matthew chapter 25. And it says this, when the son of God comes in his glory, second coming, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. It's reestablishing there in Jerusalem. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on the right and the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on his right, come, you are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom, what we're just talking about today, prepared for you from the foundation of the world. The next part of this in chapter 25, verses 35 to 40, when I read these, they're gonna be very familiar to you. You're gonna say, oh, I've heard those before, but what I remind you, I don't think we think about them in the context of teaching towards the end times that come. Verse 35. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you and thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you? And when were you naked and clothed you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it for one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it for me. Interesting in that context of, of things he's talking about. So Jesus is really sharing this, that when you cared for the remnant of believers, my chosen people, during this time, those folks that have survived the persecution, have survived the, the mark of the beast, have survived all these things, when you did it for them in the midst of these times, I want you to know that you were doing it for me. Think about the believers at this time. This is a group of remnant who really has all these things have been true. They've rejected the mark of the beast and all that means to them. They, they've been persecuted, beheaded. They've, they've absorbed all the calamities of the world that have happened. And in these difficult situations, Jesus says, when you showed compassion to them, you did it for me. It goes on to list the opposite in verses 41 to 45, the, the last part of there. It tells that when you reject God and when you persecuted his people and when you threw them into prison, when you failed to care for them, your actions gave evidence of the attitude of your heart. And because of that, judgment will come on you. So here's what he's saying. is Your treatment of the needy gives evidence to the condition of your heart. If you met their needs, it reminds you that your loyalty is to me. 
When you rejected them in prison, it gave evidence that your heart, that you were, your rejection of me and your allegiance was to the, the kings of darkness as a go. Verse 46 gives us the judgment based on that decision. Verse 46, and these will go away into eternal punishment, the goats, but the righteous into eternal life, the sheep that are there. So Matthew 25 says a judgment that comes here, and here's basically what happened. Believers will enter the millennial kingdom and unbelievers will enter hell or what we know as the lake of fire. Let me just put a chart because this is really confusing at times, some hard to understand. We have the rapture, we have the tribulation, we have the second coming of Christ, right? The battle of Armageddon that's there. And then after that moment, Matthew 25, separation of the sheep and the goats. The goats are cast into judgment because of their allegiance to the, to the Antichrist because how they treated believers. The sheep, because of their allegiance to care for the least of these and God's people, gave evidence of a heart that was devoted to the Lord. They now enter into the millennial kingdom and the goats enter into the, uh, the judgment that comes there. So if that being the case, this is a lot to gather, the first generation of people into the thousand-year millennial reign are all going to be believers because they are the sheep that enter. They're still sinful. They still have a sin nature, but they will have their devotion to Christ. So as we think about it, again, this is not heaven, right? Because sin still exists during this time because of the sin nature. But think about all the things that are happening. As you enter into this thousand-year millennial reign, the influence of Satan is no longer present on this earth. Why? Because he was bound. We saw at the very start of the chapter that was there. Jesus now sits on the throne as the leader of the world and all the difference that makes. I mean, there is no more Fox versus CNN. Uh, there is only one news station now, right? It's Jerusalem Live, 777 is the way we go, right? All the things that are there that are happening. People, we just read in Isaiah chapter 65, people will live People will work. They'll enjoy the fruit of their labor. Um, they're going to reproduce the earth. Remember, at the end of the tribulation, half the world's population has been killed. And so all of a sudden, we're repopulating the earth. Now listen, think, if you're going to have a long life, if you're going to live hundreds or however many hundreds of years that may be, and you're still feeling active and good, you're going to have lots of kids. That's all I'm going to say. That's a lot of, you know, a lot of years that go by. So now, the second generation of those believers who entered in are now born into this millennial reign. Because they're born with sin nature, I believe the second generation of people born into the millennium will be those who, there will be some within those who will begin to reject and not choose God. First generation made it because of their choice, second generation because of that. I think there will be many who follow Christ, but there will also be those that reject. So that's who's gonna be in the millennium. What will we be doing during the millennium, right? As place, folks have placed their faith in Christ, raptured, all the things that we've seen, we've come down with Jesus in the battle of Armageddon. Verse four tells us, then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who did not worship the beast or its image and not have received its mark on their foreheads and on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Interesting word there. See the word thrones? Plural, right? There isn't one throne where Jesus will reign. There are multiple. Revelation chapter 5, verse 10, I think gave us a little glimpse of this early. It said this, And you have been made them a kingdom 
and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Now, I wish I fully understood what all this meant, and I'm not grasping all, but here's a concept that I see that lives throughout here. It appears that we're going to be given some degree of authority during the millennial reign and during this kingdom, that we're going to have responsibilities to lead and govern over those who are alive on earth during this thousand-year time. So for a thousand years, we will govern, reign, many thrones, uh, in a time of peace over the earth. Now listen, there's still sin, there's still struggle there, but earth overall is prospering because the influence of Satan has been removed, the curse on the earth has been removed, and all these things are there. So it goes on. So I think what will we be doing, I think we will be reigning over certain levels of there. And there seems to be an indication that we will reign over proportion to our faithfulness while we live our lives will be the degree and the amount of influence we have during that time. So not all of those positions will be equal. They'll be based a little bit on the faithfulness that you and I live our lives even today. Continues on, verse seven, amazing. And then when a thousand years was ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog to gather for the battle. Their numbers is like the sand of the sea. That's the idea, I get the idea that we have repopulated the earth at a pretty high rate because the numbers are sand to see who reject Christ. And they marched over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded and camped camped the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false priest and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. I don't know about you, I read this and I ask, like, why was Satan released? I mean, he had him bound. I mean, I'm kind of like, I think we ought to leave him there. Uh, why are we all of a sudden releasing him for a short period of time, right? Uh, well, one reason, I, I think, a possibility of why he was released is that it would once again give mankind the opportunity to choose to be saved and choose who they would be followed, right? We have a generation now who is being born into the millennium that the only somewhat choice they see is Jesus who is reigning on the throne. And some have said this, that's not really a true sense of choice because all you have was Jesus reigning when Satan is released, whether right or not, when Satan was released, it now gave them a genuine sense of choice to where their allegiance would be, just a thought. So the deceiver is released after a thousand years. And can you imagine for a thousand years he has been stewing this anger and wrath, and now he is released. And what does he do? He deceives millions. I don't know how this happens. The Bible says like sands of the sea. I mean, it always amazes me, right? We're living in a thousand years of utopia. I mean, there's no war. There's global peace. There's peace amongst the animal kingdom. There's prosperity. Jesus is reigning on the throne. And yet millions, the Bible says, will choose to reject Jesus and follow Satan at this time. It shouldn't surprise us, right? We've seen this before. Satan, exalted angel, in a position of power and authority, living in heaven, the hubris of his soul begins to think, I should be the one ruling. I should be the one. I should be the one. It comes. Adam and Eve, living in the Garden of Eden, right? Utopia that was there, and yet Satan deceives them in such a way, you, you really should know the truth. I'm always reminded at this moment, it's what Jeremiah 17, 9 says, right? The heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? 
that the pride in our heart is such a dark thing that even in the midst of utopia, millions will say, I don't think I wanna submit to this God. I don't think I wanna humble, I, I can take care of myself. I've got this vineyard, I've got this home, I've got these things, why not me, right? And it's the pride rises up, it has from the very beginning, Jeremiah 17, nine says it's our heart that's there. So Satan deceives millions, and then he returns, he returns to his original battle plan. Remember this, when he realized that he could not defeat Jesus, when Jesus' death on the cross defeated him, he says, well, then I'm gonna go after the people of God and I'm gonna go after the city of God. And that was his plan way back in Armageddon. And look, he returns to the exact same thing that he does. So once again, he rallies the armies of the world. And where do they come? They come to Jerusalem, the holy city, to overtake it. And this time, as the armies of the world are once again, we've seen this, once again rallied around the walls of Jerusalem, Fire falls from heaven and destroys the armies of the earth. And Satan is defeated. Chain and the key in one hand, the angel grabs him on the other and throws him into the lake of fire where he joins who? The Antichrist and the false prophet. Again, I want to remind you that Satan is thrown into the lake of fire, what we call hell. He was thrown in there not so he could torment people. He was thrown in there to be the primary tormentee. This is his punishment. This is the punishment for him, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. They're not the tormentors. They're experiencing that. So now we move to the final stage before eternity comes. Last part of chapter 20 says one big major event happens before the ushering into uh, the new Jerusalem. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. For his presence, earth and sky, they fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. Then another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up their dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And this is the second death the lake of fire, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And Revelations chapter 20 ends with this difficult and challenging truth that all unbelievers, both past and present, stand before God and they're judged by the open books at the white throne judgment. Now, you may not have noticed this before, but it isn't interesting that it says books, rather than simply that. I think most of us think about at the white throne, it was the book, the, the, the Lamb's book of life. So if there were books being opened, why did it take books? Here's a thought for you I propose to you to think about today. That the idea that the degree of judgment that they are going to experience in hell for eternity will be based upon what is written in these books about them. They will all experience judgment but the degree of that judgment may be determined about what's written in those books. So what are the books? We know a couple of things the Bible says. One of the books will be the, the word of God, right? John chapter 12, verse 48 says this. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. In other words, one of the, this is one of the judge. How did you live your life in accordance to what is written in here? And it also appears, whether it's the, the Bible, a, a book that appears to contain the works of sinners. 
So the works of their life. The New Testament, here's where we get that idea. In the New Testament, Jesus is talking to a town that he has gone and shared the gospel to clearly. Signs and wonders to affirm these things. And they blatantly have rejected him and rejected the gospel. And so he's now going to compare the judgment that that town is going to experience compared to the judgment of Sodom. Right? We're familiar with Sodom. Here's what he says uh, along there. So the idea is this. Because they have rejected Christ fully, the judgment on them will be greater even than on Sodom because of the level of light and knowledge they have received. They're accountable for them. Both will receive the judgment of hell, but the degrees of that could be different. Luke chapter 10, verse 12 is where we get this idea. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. In other words, everybody's got judgment because they rejected Christ but it's actually gonna be more unbearable for the town than it will be for Sodom. Verse 14, he goes on and says again, it will be more bearable in the judgment of Tyre than Sidon than before you. In other words, he's saying again to the town, the judgment for you is even gonna be greater and more harsh than it will be for this town and that town and even the town Sodom that you think so much. So Luke, he goes on a little farther in Luke chapter 12 as Jesus is teaching a parable and he talks about in this parable the difference of punishment depending on what you have been entrusted with. It's the steward. So who much is given, much is expected. This is the same parable. The idea that the punishment is greater for those who have been entrusted with more. And the thought is this, that hell will be the same for everyone. If, if hell was gonna be the same for everyone, we would only need one book. And that would be the book of life, right? Your name's in it or it's not. There seems to be some degree of the differing books are gonna give differing Amounts of punishment, you're still receiving the punishment of hell, but different amounts of punishment depending on how you lived your life is the thought on that. The one book that we are familiar with, the one that really matters in this is the book of life. And go back to Revelation chapter 20, verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. As a believer, my confidence comes that my name is written in the book of life. The inclusion of my name in that book is where I find my security and my salvation and the security of who I am in Christ. But those names who are not found in the book, the Bible's pretty clear, says that they will be thrown in to the lake of fire. Next week, we talk about heaven, and we love to talk about heaven, and that's an awesome thing. But can I remind you this, that if we believe in a literal heaven, we must also believe in a literal hell. And that's the... The, the heavy words of Revelation chapter 20. The Bible's pretty clear about hell. It says the same things about hell. It says it'll be a place of darkness. It'll be a place of, of unquenchable fire, that the suffering of people will produce weeping and the gnashing of teeth. But the greatest punishment of hell, which I don't think we can fully understand or even grasp, would be the greatest punishment of hell is that we are separated from the presence of God for eternity. The Bible's pretty clear about this, and sometimes we look at it and say, ooh, <laughs> there's a fear of what could be, and I don't know about you, that's part of my faith story. The fear of hell is a part of that. As, as a young child, growing up, going to church, my parents sharing with me the, the joys of heaven and the, and the reality of that choices, uh, even as a young child, and I had some grasp of the difference between these two things, I'll tell you what, the, the thought and the fear of heaven is one of the things that, or hell, is one of the things that moved me closest into the arms of Jesus. <laughs> to say, I, I want to experience this, and I want to avoid these things. I think that's one of the reasons Jesus spoke more about hell 
than he did about heaven, even in his ministry. That the sobering reality of hell should drive us into the arms of our Savior. Revelation chapter 20, compared to Revelation 21, we'll see next week, the contrast between heaven and hell could not be more dramatic. It's a story that rolls all the way through the end times, right? God, out of his infinite love and mercy, says to the world, I desire that none would perish. I want everybody to come to a saving knowledge of me. And so listen, I'm gonna shake the very fiber of who you are. I'm gonna shake the very foundation of the earth that you might understand that I am God. And in that moment, you're stuck with the decision. You're either gonna humble yourself and repent and be saved, or you're gonna raise your fist in anger at God and say, how dare you and blaspheme his name and you're gonna move off in rebellion. I mean, that's the story of the end times. It's a story that for us today, and so I'd ask you simply that, is what today is your decision about God? Have you come to a point of repentance and humility? Or like so many before, have you allowed the pride of your heart to say, God, I don't need you. I can do this on my own. God, I'm good. my good deeds outweigh my bad days. I can handle this. And we reject God in, in such a way. See, that decision is so significant because it determines if your name is written in the book of life. And Revelations chapter 20 could not be more clear that on that day, all that matters is have you chosen to accept Christ or reject him? And your name in that book makes all the difference. So how do I know for sure that my name will be found in the book of life? John chapter five, verse 24 says this, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And so many of us, that's our story, right? We, we heard the truth of God's word and we believed. God, I understand what your word is saying to me. I, I understand my sinfulness, and my fallenness, and my pride. Romans 3.23. God, I, I understand that your love for me, since I can never be good enough to ever earn my way to salvation and my, earn my way to heaven, God, I, I understand the truth of your word that you love me enough that you sent Jesus, who died on the cross pay the penalty for my sin that I might experience a restored relationship with God. God, I, I see it in your word. I hear it. I believe in these things. And truly, truly, it says, listen, if that's the case and the acceptance of what Jesus has done for me on the cross, then I have passed from death to life. Question for you today is, do you know without a shadow of a doubt? Do you know, do you know that on that day, that your name is written in the book of life? If not, would you like to know? This morning, just in these moments, if you would, if you just bow your heads with me this morning, and maybe you're here today or maybe you're watching online today and you're saying, Pastor, I'm not sure. I wanna to say today's the day that just to take time, you could solidify that with the Lord. Or maybe you're just saying today, Pastor, I'll be honest, I think I've fallen, I've just rejected God. I'm doing my own thing trying to just live my own life and worry about him later, but today I really realize that today is the day I, I wanna know for sure. So today, if that's you today, I'm gonna lead you in a prayer. It's not a magical prayer. It's not the words that save you. It's just the attitude of your heart that acknowledges, God, I, I need to repent of my sin and my pride. 
And God, I wanna make you my Lord and my Savior. So if that's you today, just as we have your heads bowed, just with you and the Lord, if that's you today, in just a moment I can pray for you, would you mind just raising your hand that I could pray with you even this morning, if that's you today? Amen, thank you. Anybody else here today saying, that's me? If you're online this morning, just encourage you to just say these words with me. Dear Heavenly Father, I realize that I'm a sinner. And I realize that my sin has separated me from you. But God, I thank you that you love me enough that you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross and to take the penalty for my sins. So Father, today, I'm placing my trust in you alone for the forgiveness of my sins and for the free gift of eternal life. God, thank you for writing my name in the book of life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Can we just celebrate today with those that have made that decision? No greater joy this hour and last hour. We've had folks that have made that decision of pass from death to life. Listen, if you made that decision today, can I invite you to a couple things? Number one, I'm so excited for you. But share that with somebody. Maybe you came with somebody, just say, hey, today I prayed that prayer with Pastor. Or maybe you have some questions. Right after our service, our prayer team's gonna be right down here in front. They would love to just answer questions, maybe pray with you firm things that are going on in your heart during this time. Also, if you go to lexcity.info on there, there's a little tab titled I Prayed, and I'd love to send you just some material to help you grow in your faith. If you're online this morning, I encourage you just drop us a note. Let us know that today you made that decision. We're so excited for that. For many of us, we remember that day and that moment. And the reality of I realize my need for Jesus. I remember as a young child, I, I want the promise and assurance that I'll spend eternity in heaven and what that meant. The wonderful thing about a relationship with God, right? God saved us not just to spend eternity with him, but he saved us to have an impact and influence here on this earth. And so it's to share the good news that's changed your life. And uh, TJ talked about it a little early, but can I just remind you, Easter is coming up. It's, it's the easiest invite because folks are expecting. They're not offended by that. It's a great opportunity to do that. And so the question for you this week is this. We have people we love, we care about, that are great friends of ours who are just, are not with God and walking with God. The reality of revelation is true. And we so desire for them to avoid and not experience those things. And so out of the love and compassion that we have for them and the love that Jesus has done in our hearts, can I just encourage you to have the courage to invite and to share. Tammy and I had dinner last Tuesday with a group for a biking crew, many of them far from God and no interest of those things. But listen, we're gonna invite them to Easter because it's a great invite and a great opportunity to get to experience the, the good news of what God does. And so that's true with you. So who in your life and who can you share? Just encourage you to do that. Revelation chapter 20, whew, heavy. A lot of amazing and challenging things, but the beauty that we see all throughout this book is God's amazing love and mercy and redemptive hope that the world would change and repent and come to know him. Next week, we're gonna see the fulfillment of that. Let's pray together. Father, thank you today for the truth of this one more time. Out of patience, you give opportunity for people to respond to you. 
Thank you that the promises that you made all the way back in the Old Testament become fulfilled and where the Messiah sits in the city of David and all the promises you made become true and give us continued reminder and confidence in your character and who you are. But Lord, it ends with the sobering thought of those that don't know you spend eternity far from you. And so God, we celebrate today with those that have made that decision. We also ask that you would use us in the lives of people who are near and dear to us to share with them the good news. God, I thank you that you are the way maker. When there was no way for us to get to you, you made a way through Jesus. And today we celebrate that in the goodness of who you are. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Lex City Church podcast. If you would like to support ministries of Lex City, visit lexcity.church/give. Please subscribe and follow us on social media at Lex City Church for more encouraging teachings and content.